Section twelve of Vice Versa by F. Ancy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Vice Versa by F. Ancy. Chapter eleven A Day of Rest. There was a letter, indeed, to be intercepted by a man's father to do him good with him. Every man in his humor. I cannot lose the thought yet of this letter sent to my son, nor leave to admire the change of manners and the breeding of our youth within the kingdom, since myself was one. Sunday came, a day which was to begin a new week for Mr. Bultitude, and of course for the rest of the Christian world as well. Whether that week would be better or worse than the one which had just passed away, he naturally could not tell. It could hardly be much worse. But the Sunday itself, he anticipated, without, however, any firm grounds for such an assumption, would be a day of brief but grateful respite, a day on which he might venture to claim much the same immunity as was enjoyed in former days by the insolvent, a day, in short, which would glide slowly by with the rather drowsy solemnity peculiar to the British Sabbath, as observed by all truly respectable persons. And yet that very Sunday, could he have foreseen it, was destined to be the most eventful day he had yet spent in the Crichton house, where none had proved wanting an incident. During the next twelve hours he was to pass through every variety of unpleasant sensation, embarrassment, suspense, fear, anxiety, dismay, and terror were to follow each other in rapid succession, and to wind up, strangely enough, with a delicious ecstasy of pure relief and happiness, a fatiguing program for any middle-aged gentleman who had never cultivated his emotional faculties. Let me try to tell how this came about. The getting-up bell rang an hour later than on weekdays, but the boys were expected to prepare certain tasks suitable for the day before they arose. Mr. Bultitude found that he was required to learn by heart a hymn in which the rhymes join and divine, throne and crown, were so happily wedded that either might conform to the other, a graceful concession to individual taste, which is not infrequent in this class of poetry. Trivial as such a task may seem in these days as school boards, it gave him infinite trouble and mental exertion, for he had not been called upon to commit anything of the kind to memory for many years, and after mastering that, there still remained a long chronological list, the dates approximately computed, of the leading events before and immediately after the deluge, which was to be repeated without looking at the book. While he was wrestling desperately with these, for he was determined, as I have said before, to do all in his power to keep himself out of trouble, Mrs. Grimstone in her morning wrapper, paid a visit to the dormitories, and in spite of Paul's attempts to excuse himself, insisted upon pomatuming his hair, an indignity which he felt acutely. When she knows who I really am, he thought, she'll be sorry she made such a point of it. If there is one thing upon earth I loathe more than another, it's marrow oil pomade. Then there was breakfast at which Dr. Grimstone appeared, resplendent in glossy broadcloth and dazzling shirt-front and semi-clerical white tie, 
and after breakfast an hour in the schoolroom during which the boys by the aid of repeated references to the text wrote out from memory the hymn they had learnt while paul managed somehow to stumble through his dates and events to the satisfaction of mr tinkler who to increase his popularity made a point of being as easily satisfied with such repetitions as he decently could after that came the order to prepare for church there was a general rush to the little room with shelves and bandboxes where church books were procured and great coats and tight-gape gloves put on when they were almost ready the doctor came in wearing his blandest and most paternal expression ah oh, it's a collection sunday to-day boys he said have you all got your three penny bits ready i like to see my boys give cheerfully and liberally of their abundance if any boy does not happen to have any small change i can accommodate him if he comes to me and this he proceeded to do from a store he had with him of that most convenient coin the chosen expression of a congregation's gratitude the common silver threepence for the school occupied a prominent position in the church and had acquired a great reputation amongst the church wardens for the admirable uniformity with which one gentleman after another put into the plate and this reputation the doctor was naturally anxious that they should maintain i am sorry to say that mr bultitude fearing lest he should be asked if he had the required sum about him and thus his penniless condition might be discovered and bring him trouble got behind the door at the beginning of the money-changing transactions and remained there till it was over it seemed to him it would be too paltry to be disgraced for want of a threepence now thus being completely furnished for their devotions the school formed in couples in the hall and filed solemnly out for the march to church mr bultitude walked nearly last with jolland whose facile nature had almost forgotten his friend's shortcomings on the previous day he kept up a perpetual flow of chatter which as he never stopped for an answer permitted paul to indulge his own thoughts unrestrained are you going to put your three penny in said jolland i won't if you don't sometimes you know when the plate comes around old grimm squints down to the pews to see that we don't shirk then i put in sixpence have you done your hymn i do hate a hymn what's the use of learning hymns they won't mark you for them you know in any exam that i i ever heard of and it can't save you the expense of a hymn book unless you learnt all the hymns in it and that would take you years oh i say look there's young mutlaw with his governor and mater i wonder what mutlaw's governor does mutlaw says he's a gentleman if you ask him but i i believe he lies see that fly driving past mother grimm the irreverent youth always spoke of mrs grimstone in this way and dulcie are in it i saw dulcie look at you dick it's a shame to treat her as you did yesterday there's young tom on the box don't his ears stick out rummily i wonder if the ugly family will be at church to-day you know the ugly family all with their mouths open and their eyes goggling like a jolly old roll of pantomime heads and oh dick suppose connie davenant's people change their pew that'll be a sell for you rather won't it i don't understand you said mr bultitude stiffly and if you don't object 
I prefer not to be called upon to talk just now. Oh, all right, said John. There aren't so many fellows who will talk to you, but just as you please, I don't want to talk. And so the pair walked in silence. Jolland, with his nose in the air, determined after that after this he really must cut his former friend, as the other fellows had done, since his devotion was appreciated so little. And Paul, watching the ascending double line of tall chimney-pot hats as they surged before him in regular movement, and feeling a dull wonder at finding himself setting out to church in such an ill-assorted company, they entered the church, and Paul was sent down to the extreme end of the pew, next to the one reserved for the doctor and his family. Dulcie was sitting there already on the other side of the partition, but she gave no sign of having noticed his arrival, being apparently absorbed in studying the rose window over the altar. He sat down in his corner with a sense of rest and almost comfort, though the seat was not a cushioned one. He had the inoffensive Kiffin for a neighbor. His chief tormentors were far away from him, in one of the back pews, and here at last he thought no harm could come to him. He could allow himself safely to do what I am afraid he generally did do under the circumstances, snatch a few intermittent but sweet periods of dreamless slumber. But while the service was proceeding, Mr. Bultitude was suddenly horrified to observe that a young lady who occupied a pew at right angles, too, and touching that in which he sat, was deliberately making furtive signals to him in the most unmistakable manner. She was a decidedly pretty girl of about fifteen, with merry and daring blue eyes and curling golden hair, and was accompanied by two small brothers who shared the same book and dealt each other stealthy and vicious kicks throughout the service and by her father, a stout, short-sighted old man in gold spectacles, who was perpetually making the wrong responses in a loud and confident tone. To be signaled, too, in a marked manner, by a strange young lady of great personal attractions, might be a coveted distinction to other schoolboys, but it simply gave Mr. Bultitude cold thrills. I suppose that's Connie Davenant, he thought shocked beyond measure as she caught his eye and coughed demurely for about the fourth time a very forward young person i think somebody ought to speak seriously to her father good gracious she's writing something on the fly-leaf of her prayer-book he said to himself presently oh i hope she's not going to send it to me i won't take it she ought to be ashamed of herself Miss Davenant was indeed busily engaged in penciling something on a blank sheet of paper, and having finished, she folded it deftly into a cocked hat, wrote a few words on the outside, and placed it between the leaves of her book. Then, as the congregation rose for the psalms, she gave a meaning glance at the blushing and scandalized Mr. Bultitude, and by dexterous management of her prayer book, shot the little cocked hat as if unconsciously into the next pew. By a very unfortunate miscalculation, however, the note missed its proper object, and clearing the partition fluttered deliberately down on the floor by Dulcie's feet. Paul saw this with alarm. He knew that at all hazards he must get that miserable note into his own possession and destroy it. It might have his name somewhere about it. It might seriously compromise him. 
so he took advantage of the noise the congregation made in repeating a verse aloud it was not a high church to whisper to dulcie little miss grimstone excuse me but there's a note a note in the pew down by your feet i believe it's intended for me dulcie had seen the whole affair and had not been a little puzzled by it a clandestine correspondence being a new thing in her short experience but she understood that in this gold-haired girl her elder by several years she saw her rival for whom dick had so basely abandoned her yesterday and she was old enough to feel the slight and the sweetness of revenge so she held her head rather higher than usual with her firm little chin projecting wilfully and waiting for the next verse but one before retorting little master bultitude i know it is could you can you manage to reach it whispered paul entreatingly yes said dulcie i could then will you when they sit down no said dulcie firmly i shan't the other girl she noticed with satisfaction had become aware of the situation and was evidently uneasy she looked as imploringly as she dared at the remorseless little dulcie as if appealing to her not to get in her into trouble but dulcie bent her eyes obstinately on her book and would not see her if the letter had been addressed to any other boy in the school she would have done her best to shield the culprits but this she could not bring herself to do here she found a malicious pleasure in remaining absolutely neutral which of course was very wrong and ill-natured of her mr bultitude began now to be seriously alarmed the fatal paper must be seen by some one in the doctor's pew as soon as the congregation sat down again and if it reached the doctor's hands it was impossible to say what misconstruction he might put upon it or what terrible consequences might follow he was innocent perfectly innocent but though the consciousness of innocence is frequently a great consolation he felt that unless he could imbue the doctor with it as well it would not save him from a flogging so he made one more desperate attempt to soften dulcie's resolution don't be a naughty little girl he said very injudiciously for his purpose i tell you i must have it you'll get me into a terrible mess if you're not careful but although dulcie had been extremely well brought up i regret to say that the only answer she chose to make to this appeal was that slight contortion of the features with which a pretty girl is euphemized as a mew and with a plain one is called making a face when he saw it he knew that all hope of changing her purpose must be abandoned then they all sat down and as paul had foreseen there the white cocked hat lay on the dark pew carpet hideously distinct with a billadeau in every fold of it it could only be a question of time now the curate was reading the first lesson for the day but mr bultitude heard not a verse of it he was waiting with bated breath for the blow to fall it fell at last dulcie either with the malevolent idea of hastening the crisis or which i prefer to believe on my own part finding that her ex-lover's visible torments were too much for her desire of vengeance was softly moving a heavy hassock toward the guilty note 
the movement caught her mother's eye and in an instant the compromising paper was in her watchful hands she read it with incredulous horror and handed it at once to the doctor the golden-haired one saw it all without betraying herself by any outward confusion she had probably had some experience in such manners and felt tolerably certain of being able at the worst to manage the old gentleman in the gold spectacles but she took an early opportunity of secretly conveying her contempt for the traitorous dulcie who continued to meet her angry glances with the blandest unconsciousness mr grimstone examined the cocked hat through his double eyeglasses with a heavy thunder cloud gathering on his brows when he had mastered it thoroughly he bent forward and glared indignantly past his wife and daughter for at least half a minute into the pew where mr bultitude was cowering until he felt he was all coming to pieces under the piercing gaze the surface passed all too quickly after that paul sat down and stood up almost unconsciously with the rest but for the first time in his life he could have wished the sermon many times longer the horror of his position quite petrified him after all his prudent resolutions to keep out of mischief and to win the regard and confidence of his jailer by his good conduct like the innocent convict in a melodrama this came as nothing less than a catastrophe he walked home in a truly dismal state of limp terror fortunately for him none of the others seemed to have noticed his misfortune and jolin made no further advances but even the weather tended to increase his depression for it was a bleak cheerless day with a bitter and searching wind sweeping the gritty roads where yesterday's rain was turned to black ice in the ruts and the sun shone with a dull coppery glitter that had no warmth or geniality about it the nearer they came to the crichton house the more abjectly miserable became mr bultitude's state of mind it was as much as he could do to crawl up the steps to the front door and his knees positively clapped together when the doctor who had driven home met them in the hall and said in a still grave voice bultitude when you have taken off your coat i want you in the study he was as long about taking off his coat as he dared but at last he went trembling into the study which he found empty he remembered the room well with his ebony-framed etchings on the walls bookcases and blue china over the draped mantelpiece even to a large case of elaborately carved indian chessmen in bullock carts and palanquins on horses and elephants which stood in the window recess it was the very room to which he had been shown when he first called about sending his son to the school he had little thought then that the time would come when he would attend there for the purpose of being flogged few things would have seemed less probable yet there he was but his train of thought was abruptly broken by the entrance of the doctor he marched solemnly in holding out the offending missive look at this sir he said shaking it angrily before paul's eyes look at this what do you mean by receiving a flippant communication like this in a sacred edifice what do you mean by it i i didn't receive it said paul at his wit's end 
don't prevaricate with me, sir. You know well enough it was intended for you. Have the goodness to read it now, and tell me what you have to say for yourself. Paul read it. It was a silly little schoolgirl note, half slang and half sentiment, signed only with the initial C.D. Well, sir, said the doctor, it's very forward and improper. Very, said Paul, but it's not my fault. I can't help it. I gave the girl no encouragement. I never saw her before in my life. To my own knowledge, Bultitude, she has sat in that pew regularly for a year. Very probable, said Paul, but I don't notice these manners. I'm past that sort of thing, my dear sir. What is her name? Come, sir, you know that. Connie Davenant, said Paul, taken unawares by the suddenness of the question. At least I... I heard so today. He felt the imprudence of such an admission as soon as he had made it. Very odd that you know your, her name if you've never noticed her before, said the doctor. That young fellow, what's his name? Jolin told me, said Paul. Ah, but it's odder still that she knows yours, for I perceive it is directed to you by name. It's easily explained, my dear sir, said Paul. Easily explained. I've no doubt she's heard it somewhere. At least I never told her. It's not likely. I do assure you that I am as much distressed and shocked by this affair as you can be yourself. I am indeed. I don't know what girls are coming to nowadays. Do you expect me to believe that you are perfectly innocent? said the doctor. Yes, I do, said Mr. Bultitude. I can't prevent fast young ladies from sending me notes. Why, she might have sent you one. We won't go into hypothetical cases, said the doctor, not relishing the war being carried into his own country. She happened to prefer you. But although your virtuous indignation seems to me a trifle overdone, sir, I don't see my way clear of punishing you on the facts, especially as you tell me you never encouraged these, these overtures, and my Dulcie, I am bound to say, confirms your statement that it was all the other young ladies' doings. But if I had any proof that you'd begun or responded to her advances, nothing could have saved you from a severe flogging at the very least. So be careful for the future. Ah, said Paul, rather feebly, quite overwhelmed by the narrowness of his escape. Then, with a desperate effort, he found the courage to add, May I, um, take advantage of this this restored cordiality to to in fact make a brief personal explanation it it's what i've been trying to tell you for a long time ever since i first came only you'll never hear me out it's highly important you've no notion how serious it is there's something about you this term richard bultitude said the doctor slowly that i confess i don't understand this obstinacy is unusual in a boy your age and if you really have a mystery, it may be as well to have it out and done with it. But I can't be annoyed with it now. Come to me after supper tonight, and I shall be willing to hear anything you may have to say. Paul was too overcome to this unexpected favor to speak his thanks. He got away as soon as he could. His path was smoothed at last. That afternoon the boys, or all of them who disposed of the work set for them that day, 
were sitting in the schoolroom, and after a somewhat chilly dinner of cold beef, cold tarts, and cold water, passing the time with that description of literature known as Sunday reading. And here, at the risk of being guilty of a digression, I must pause to record my admiration for this exceedingly happy form of compromise, which is, I think, peculiar to the British, and to a certain extent the American nations. It has many developments, ranging from the mild transatlantic compound of cookery and camp meetings, to the semi-novel, redeemed and chastened by an arrangement which sandwiches a sermon or a biblical lecture in between each chapter of the story, a great convenience for the race of skippers. Then there are one or two illustrated magazines, which it is always allowable to read on the Sabbath without fear of rebuke from the strictest, though it's not quite easy to see why. Open any of the monthly numbers, and chances are that you might possibly find at one part a neat little doctrinal essay by a literary bishop. The rest of the contents will consist of nothing more serious than a paper upon cockroaches and their habits by an eminent servant, a description of foreign travel done in a brilliantly and wholly secular vein, and further on again an article on aesthetic furniture, while the balance of the number will be devoted to installments of two thrilling novels by popular authors, whose theology is seldom their strongest point. Oddly enough, too, when these very novels come out later in three-volume form, with the mark of the beast in the shape of a circulating library ticket upon them, they will be fortunate if they are not interdicted altogether by some of the serious families who take the magazines as being so suitable for Sundays. Mr. Bultitude, at all events, had reason to be grateful for this toleration, for in one of the bound volumes supplied to him he found a most interesting and delightful unisectarian novel which appealed to his tastes as a businessman, for it was all about commerce and making fortunes by blockade-running. And though he was no novel-reader as a rule, his mind was so relieved, and set at rest by the prospect of seeing the end to his trouble at last, that he was able to occupy his mind with the fortunes of the hero. He naturally detected technical errors here and there, but that pleased him, and he was becoming so deeply absorbed in the tale that he felt seriously annoyed when Chawner came softly up to the desk at which he was sitting, and sat down close to him, crossing his arms before him and leaning forward upon them with his sallow face towards Paul. Dicky, he began in a cautious, oily tone, "'Did I hear the doctor say before dinner that he would hear anything you have to tell him after supper? Did I?' "'I really can't say,' said Paul. If you were near the keyhole at the time, very likely you did. The door was open, said Chawner, and I was in the cloakroom, so I heard. And I want to know, what is it you're going to tell the doctor? Mind your own business, sir, Paul said sharply. It is my own business, said Chawner, but I don't want to be told what you're going to tell him. I know. "'Good heavens!' said Mr. Bultitude, annoyed to find his secret in possession of this boy of all others. "'Yes,' repeated Chawner, "'I know. And I tell you what, I won't have it.' "'Won't have it? And why?' "'Never mind why. Perhaps I don't choose that the doctor should be told just yet. Perhaps I mean to go up and tell him myself some other day. 
I want to have a little more fun out of it before I've done. But, but, said Paul, you young ghoul, do you mean to say that all you care for is to see other people's sufferings? Chawner groaned maliciously. Yes, he said suavely. It amuses me. And so, said Paul, you want me to hold back a little longer, because it's so funny, and then when you're quite tired of your sport, you'll go up and tell the doctor my my unhappy story yourself, eh? No, my friend, I'd rather not tell him myself. But I'll be shot if I let you have a finger in it. I know my own interests better than that. Don't get in a passion, Dickie, said Chawner. It's Sunday. You'll have to let me go up instead of you, when I've frightened them a little more. Who do you mean by them, sir? said Paul, growing puzzled. As if you didn't know. Oh, you're too clever for me, Dickie, I can see, sniggered Shawner. I tell you I don't know, said Mr. Bultitude. Look here, Chawner. Your confounded name is Chawner, isn't it? There's a mistake somewhere, I'm sure of it. Listen to me. I am not going to tell the doctor what you think I am. What do I think you're going to tell him? I haven't the slightest idea, but whatever it is, you're wrong. Oh, you're too clever, Dickie. You won't betray yourself, but other people want to play coker and tipping out as well as you, and I say you must wait. I shan't say anything to affect anyone but myself, said Paul. If you know all about it, you must know that. It won't interfere with your amusement that I can see. Yes, it will, said Chawner irritably. It will. You mayn't mean to tell of anyone but yourself, but directly Grimstone asks you questions, it all comes out. I know all about it. And anyway, I forbid you to go up until I give you leave. "'And who the deuce are you?' said Mr. Bultitude, nettled at this assumption of authority. "'How are you going to prevent me, I may ask?' "'Shh! There's the doctor,' whispered Chawner hurriedly. "'I'll tell you after tea.' "'What am I doing out of my place, sir?' "'Oh, oh I was only asking Bultitude what was the collect for today, sir. Fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. Thank you, Bultitude.' And he glided back to his seat leaving Paul in a state of vague uneasiness. Why did this fellow with the infernal sly face and glib tongue want to prevent him from writing himself with the world? And how could he possibly prevent him? It was absurd. He would take no notice of the young scoundrel. He would defy him. But he could not banish the uneasy feeling. The cup had slipped so many times before, at the critical moment, that he could not be sure whose hand would be the next to jog his elbow. And so he went down to tea with renewed misgivings. End of section 12 Recorded by Sherry Dipong